The five greatest errors of all time. Mankind is mortal, made of flesh. We are prone to error, we make mistakes. It is not difficult to view war and crime as mistakes. Many marriages, elections, business decisions, purchases and so on are considered errors. But, if you ask people, they will claim humans are a rational species and they are themselves highly rational. Apart from the mistakes that have been made and continue to be made, on the individual and group level, mankind has committed five especially grievous errors. Five of the most serious and far-reaching and momentous mistakes are made over and over again, individually and communally, by all persons of all eras everywhere, and most people view these problems as innovations to be applauded and celebrated, not condemned. The monumentality of these errors is not based on the deaths caused by the error or the costs associated with them. The seriousness of the error is not based on the spiritual impact the error had on human life or our community. The monumentality of them is based on the degree to which they have been embraced as solutions and ideas to be celebrated. When we do something wrong that is viewed as wrong it can have serious implications, but if we know we have done wrong we attempt to fix the problem, we contain the problem. The crucifixion of Jesus and the Holocaust, the world wars and genocides committed by atheist regimes were horrendous events. No one can say these were not mistakes of the worst sort. But the world knows these were errors, and we recognize the negative impact they had. The world strives to avoid doing these things again and to rectify the harm done. In this sense we learned or are learning from our mistakes. The crucifixion of Jesus gives us a chance at eternal life. The war stopped an even worse-case scenario. As shoddy as it may be to say it, in most cases, as problematical as the events were, there was a silver lining, there was something learned. The world moved on. Good can comes out of the darkness. As terrible as the world wars and the crucifixion were, the world learned much from them, and we have progressed from where we were at the point the event took place. What did we learn from Babylon? Babylon arose at the earliest point in mankind's history. Babylon rose as the beginning of civilization, but also at the beginning of large-scale oppression. Yet, in the Bible, we learn Babylon is to be destroyed. Babylon, or what it symbolizes, is an error. Yet, at the end times, it is the central figure of the apocalypse. Yet, we read revelations and do not understand why what is happening, is happening. Perhaps it was the same for those who were caught in the flood. Perhaps those who experienced the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah were utterly confused why this disaster was befalling them. It can be bad to drink alcohol, as it negatively impacts many of us. It is worse if we drink and allow our drinking to negatively impact others. We may get drunk and have a traffic accident. It is worse again if we become alcoholic and cannot stop drinking. But how much worse is it if all of this happens and we do not even admit there is a problem? 
Babylon developed some things which were innovations at the time, but which still exist. These things have been normalized. The Bible tells us at the end times to come out of Babylon. But that is not the worst of it. Most people who read Revelations think everyone is being called out. We may think God is talking to all persons. He is not. In Revelation 18 we read, 4b. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Not all come out. Not all are told to come out. My people are told to come out. Saints are to come out so that we are not partakers of her sins, and so we do not receive her plagues. If all come out the city would no longer exist. There are two groups who bewail the fall of Babylon. These are the rulers and the merchants. The state was developed by Nimrod. Nimrod was the originator of the city-state. Tribes were ruled by male elders, cities and empires were ruled by a man of renown, a mighty man. These are the kings of the earth. We who believe know the Bible talks about two peoples. The Bible never talks about the human race, it talks about the people of God and those who are of Satan. We on the right might be forgiven for assuming the five evils are associated with the left. Interestingly, the state is associated more often with socialism, communism, collectivism, and the social agenda of the left than with anything on the right. Indeed, conservatives have consistently tried to minimize, if not eliminate, the state. But why is that? There are Christians who argue we on the right ought to obey the state. The Bible, it is said, instructs us to obey the higher powers. Capitalism is as dependent on the state as communism. We will discover both left and right equally embrace the five errors. Indeed, there are large numbers of Christians who assume the state is consistent with the purpose of God. This is why Protestants have consistently looked to the state for protection. Romans 13 verses 1 to 7 Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This seems clear enough, but we are also instructed to have no other gods before the Almighty. A man can have but one master. 
But if we live under the state and serve the state, is not the state our master? But that is the point, if we live under the state, we must obey the state. We are not permitted to fight the state, but are to serve the state, so as to not bring the church into disrespect. As the slave does not serve his master with thy service, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, the church is to serve those whom he has put himself under. This service is to be done according to the flesh. Romans 3 verse 20 Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The state operates by law. The state is a maker of law. Man must be reborn to be saved. We enter a new kingdom as we leave the old kingdom. Those of the Spirit are in the world but not of the world. We do not oppose the state as flesh and blood. To do this, to rebel physically, is to remain tied to this world of the flesh. The church is to live as the people of God. A key facet of this is ownership, even unto our ownership of self. The state sits in the high seat of God. The state poses as the owner of what is God's. The state is truly the abomination of desolation that destroys all that is holy. To understand the distinction between the church and state, we have to understand ownership. The state asserts ownership is a legal right. This is because it is the state that creates the law. We own what we have been given a license to. This claim makes the state the center of everything. This claim, however, only makes sense or can only be valid if the state has the power to protect its regulatory authority from domestic and foreign enemies. Enemies are those who seek to take away one's property. But what right has the state to assign to its subjects property rights? This authority rests solely on its physical power to impose its decisions onto its subjects and any foreign power who disputes its rights. But we have to ask if the power to enforce regulation is the only way to legitimize ownership? Does the stronger person or organization always have the right to claim what it has the power to take, and if not where does the rights of the state to possess a dominion, a nation, come from? Does all political power come from the barrel of a gun, as Mao is reported to have said? If a captain cannot land on a continent and claim it for his sovereign, how does the sovereign arrive at his claim to an island or other territory? If an army cannot legitimately invade a country, slaughter its army and claim the conquered territory for its emperor, how does the emperor get the right to divide this territory into estates for his nobles? We are now watching Russia invade Ukraine. Russia intends to capture it and incorporate it into the Russian territories. It will then divide Ukraine into territories its officials will control. If this is not a valid way of acquiring territory, what about all the other lands under other states? How did the U.S. come by its lands, or the island of Puerto Rico, for example? But there is another way the state legitimizes itself. This process of gaining legitimacy is called democracy. We the people vote in a government, and the government then regulates the affairs of we the people.
The legitimacy of the state is acquired from the people, who acquire their legitimacy from the state. The state owns Canada because we the people vote in our government. The government vests ownership of Canada in the hands of we the people because it has the army and organization to protect Canada from interlopers. If the captain of a ship or the armies of a king cannot justify their claim except by virtue of their ability to enforce this claim through the weapons and tactics of war, why is the claim made more legitimate by the number of persons making the claim or the historicity of the claim? If one person cannot make a legitimate claim on the earth, why do 10,000 making the claim 10,000 years ago make the claim more plausible? If the captain of a ship has the right to seize Central America for the Spanish king, why can't I seize my town for myself? Does it all come down to how many guns one can bring to the fight? If force does not legitimize ownership, why does a majority define truth? or who has the right to rule, as in democracy and as in peer review. If ten people decide to take my car, does it become theirs, because they outvoted me and my claim? Or, because ten people can gang up and form a mob, and take what is mine, does what they take, becomes their property? What if the majority vote in one member who becomes king? What if the king signs a decree that gives what is mine to others for the good of the community? Does this mean my rights to what I created can be invalidated by a majority vote? Can the greater good nullify my property rights? Can a regulation issued by the state rescind my claim to what I paid for because the state has been legitimized by a majority vote? No one believes personal power or the power of numbers truly think the physical power of the mob defines what is morally right. But we all think it is in our best interest to play along with democracy and the rights of kings and hope we benefit from our compliance more than we are harmed. Democracy is a hypocrisy of the highest order. But what if I claim an island is mine and another person offers me a million dollars to transfer my claim to him? Can I sell it to him? Apart from the issue of if my title to the land is valid, is the question of if money can be used as a store of value or medium of exchange. For some reason, civilized people think that if something physical is divided into portions, and these portions given values, one has invented money. We do this with all kinds of things, stones, shells, paper, gold and other metals, and even numbers themselves. Imagine someone putting numbers in a computer and calling these particular numbers money? Because other people with other computers play along the one who created this digital currency gets away with it. Bank money is a pyramid scam, but so long as everyone plays along, the scam can work. Money as quantified assets is like a pyramid scam. So long as people will pay money to receive more money at a later date, the scam works. But at some point, there are no new buyers of money and so the person who bought money, hoping to get more later on, cannot receive their supply. Then the pyramid collapses. Bank money only works so long as people keep taking it in exchange for real things with real value. 
But this only happens when they believe other people will take it for their real things of real value. But this is also dependent on people thinking the government decides who owns what, who can sell what and so who can expect payment. What if we find out the government did not own the nation and could not license property or corporations and it was all a scam? What would happen to bank money when people lose their title to property? But of course, this could never happen, could it? But if the state cannot issue a clear title to land and money created out of physical assets, is property no one has a right to, then what gives the person who is making gold coins the right to turn gold or paper into money? No one asks this question, yet it is a pertinent question. Before buying land using gold coins or paper money, I ought to be convinced that not only does the seller have a clear title to the land, but that the mint has the right to make something called money from paper or gold or other asset. The problem does not vanish because we decide to use paper or shells or digital units in place of gold. If we can question who has the right to claim land, the right to own anything physical arises naturally from the original question. Indeed, with digital currencies the questions only become more troublesome. Who or what gives the person who creates a digital currency the right to claim what is physical? To put this another way, my bank puts $2 million in my account. I buy land valued at $2 million. The seller lost a real piece of land. All he has is numbers in a bank account. The bank claims the seller can buy other things with these numbers in his account. This passing of numbers around to represent value can carry on indefinitely. But until the bank gets its $2 million back, interest is being paid on the loan. But if the bank wants $2,200,000, how is the money paid back? If I borrow $2 million and have to pay back $2 million plus interest, where does the interest come from? Fred bakes a pie. I borrow $10 and buy the pie. I eat the pie. What if Fred keeps making pies and I keep borrowing money to buy these pies? I could kill a chicken and sell it to Fred for $10 and pay back the bank. What then, I still owe the interest. And neither of us have any money. The problem we had originally is made worse. We have no money, and we are in debt for the interest. This problem created by a false conception of ownership and money made out of assets never goes away. The problems get buried under more and more debt. These lies create confusion. It is a confusion that has not been eliminated, but made manageable by what is called double-entry bookkeeping. This is a way to hide the fact ownership is contingent and provisional. Double-entry bookkeeping permits me to own the title to a property though the property is actually owned by the bank. This ownership by a business that does not have the title is called a liability. The liability my title is a paper title and not unchallenged or unchallengeable. To return full circle, Double-entry bookkeeping and the idea of split ownership would not be possible without the state, 
without the ability to make fictitious claims on physical assets, without the use of other physical assets as money, and without all of this being made legitimate because we have all signed on to the insanity. The five errors are the state as a lawmaker, ownership as a legal license to physical property, double-entry bookkeeping, money as the digitalization of assets, and of course democracy, the idea that just because a sufficient number of persons sign on, it has to be true and reasonable.